Hello everyone, my name is Adam, and welcome into this week's trip down the homeward path. Before we get into things, I've got a few questions. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? Presumably so, since you're here listening to a podcast about it, but, you know, what do I know? But is there something else in your life that takes precedence? Keeps you away from your magical aspirations? A job, a career, partner, spouse, children, any and all of the above. Listen, I'm right there with you. I have a wonderful wife, three children, full-time job, and a lot of extracurricular commitments that make it really difficult to devote the amount of time, finance, and energy that high-level competitive magic normally takes. But in spite of that, are you, like me, relentlessly seeking improvement every time you get a chance to play? If that sounds like something you're interested in, then I suggest you hop in and buckle up. Now let's go for a ride. But it's a good time to remind you that we are brought to you by the following sponsors. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. They've got a little bit of something for absolutely everyone. And I do mean everyone. So head over there, check out their collection of stuff. While you're at it, I understand that the arena grind can feel like a bit of a slog, especially if, like me, you're traditionally at least a free-to-play player. But thanks to our sponsor at Grey Viking Games, you don't have to wander the wilderness in search of your glory on your own. You can head over there and find access to pre-release codes, single-pack codes, cosmetics, promo packs, uh, card sleeves, any and all of the above. So go and find your glory at GreyVikingGames.com. And if you want to support this show in a much more direct fashion, don't forget to head over to Patreon.com slash HomerPathMTG. This show is always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, go over become a patron and take advantage of your rewards and if you've got questions comments or concerns about the show or you just want to talk you can find me on twitter i'm at homeward path mtg you can find me on facebook my name is adam spain like the country yes i got picked on about that for most of my life and you can join the conversation in the facebook group the homeward pathfinders So, head over, check all that stuff out, while you continue to listen on the Homeward Path. Well, I hope everyone's had a good week. Uh, This one's been a little better than the last few. So, we're going to dive in. First segment, Budget Spotlight. And this week, we're looking at the Jeskai. So, with that in mind... Our first card on the list, given that Jeskai is the blue cord clan of Tarkir, we're going to look at a nice, super effective, but not very expensive blue card. And in this case, the card is going to be Sleight of Hand. Sleight of Hand is a single blue mana. Look at the top two cards of your library. 
choose one of them to put in your hand, put the other on the bottom of your library. That card costs one mana and one dollar for a sorcery. So first and foremost, it is the best cantrip for its dollar value in modern. And I don't think it's particularly close. Like opt costs nothing, but it's opt. It's exactly fine. And then you've got cards like uh, <clears throat> Serum Visions that somehow is still $5, even though it's aggressively mediocre. Uh, I guess largely because it's just the only thing you have in a lot of decks that want to do this. You know, draw a card, then scry two is very on brand for a lot of things. For a lot of decks, control decks in particular, it helps them fix future draws. But in a in the case of a card like Slide of Hand, you both get the card you want and get rid of the card you don't. Now, yes, this can sometimes lend itself to some difficult decisions when you've got two cards that are both very good and both things you want, but you've presumably been playing Magic long enough to know that these things happen sometimes. But I, you know, I would say it is the best cantrip for its dollar value in modern. At one dollar for that much value, look at two, pick one. It's it's like two thirds of a preordain. Because while you don't get to scry first, I get it. It's frustrating. But you do get to look at two cards before you make a decision on which one you want. And I think that's pretty valuable. So for the low, low price of $1, that's, that's pretty good. It's also an appropriate power level to start looking uh, to start looking at potential standard reprints down the line. It's not so good that it's too good for standard, but it's also not so bad that it's like a shoe-in. It's one of those cards that if the if cantrips are kind of an over, overarching theme similar to what it was in uh, Guilds of Ravnica and Ravnica Allegiance. If cantrips are an overarching theme, it's a little bit of a different animal there. You know, we had cards like Discovery Dispersal. We had cards like Radical Idea. And then we had Opt, all in standard together, helping facilitate a lot of different decks. And in a format like that, I could see them putting sleight of hand back into a standard set and not really batting an eye about it because it's the kind of card that's very good but it's not too good it's not preordains level where it's going to be everywhere it's not ponders level where it's going to be everywhere the decks that want it will play it but i don't think it's the kind of cantrip that just sees play in every deck that can play it or you know just because it makes you make a more impactful decision. One of the cards, it's not, you know, preordain or ponder where you can leave the land on top of your deck after you draw the action or leave the action on top of your deck after you draw the land. If you play sleight of hand, you're making a decision between the two. Do I need lands or do I need action? And whichever one I don't need out of these two cards is going away. That's a really appropriate power level for standard. Next on the list is our red card in question. It is Arclight Phoenix, and I mean, I'd be lying if I said this wasn't in large part due to the fact that I love this card, but 
Arclight Phoenix is three and a red for three two flying haste. And at the beginning of combat on your turn, if you've cast three or more instants or sorceries this turn, you can return Arclight Phoenix from your graveyard to the battlefield. Now, I remember when this thing came out at $25 a copy. I remember when it dipped to about 15 and I ended up snapping them up. And then it bumped back up because the Phoenix deck in Standard got access to Finale of Promise. And people figured out that Faithless Looting plus Arclight Phoenix was busted in half in Modern and it bumped back up over 20 This thing is $3.50 now. I'm not even going to make the joke because I love this card too much. $3.50 gets you Arclight Phoenix. Come on! Really? That's it? Seeing this card at this price point is just really jarring because of its history and in, in pricing and its pedigree as a competitive juggernaut when the, when the situation is right. It's just very, very good. To the point that I would argue this is the single best payoff for a Xerox deck I've ever seen. And for those of you who don't know what a Xerox deck is, it's a deck loaded with cantrips that plays a low land count and uses cantrips to fix mana. And one of the downsides to playing a deck like that is you end up with a lot of what we call air in your deck, where your card draw draws more card draw, and you just spend your mana, spin your wheels, and don't really do anything. Well, Arclight Phoenix is a nice little payoff for that because you actually can just dump it to the graveyard with something like Faithless Looting, Careful Study, car, uh, Charter Course, Lightning Axe, uh, Cathartic Reunion, Is It Charm, so on and so forth. Get it in the graveyard and then when you go through a turn with a little bit of air, you get rewarded by bringing all your birds back. And if your opponent exiles them, they exile them, but they have to exile them or they're going to die. And that's just the most, it's like a passive payoff for the Xerox deck, which is really cool. Compared to something like Delver of Secrets that you sometimes have to do the work to set it up on your turn. Or compared to something like uh, Thing in the Ice, where it takes a little bit of time to set it up and you've got to protect it. Or compared to something like Young Pyromancer, where an opponent's board wipe can undo all of the work you've done and you won't get it back. Phoenix is just like, am I exiled? Because if I'm not, we're going to do this again. I don't know when, but we're going to do this again. So you can do a whole lot worse than the best cantrip payoff, the best Xerox payoff I've ever played for $3.50. Our white card on the list, because we're talking about Jeskai, is Favored Hoplite. Now this one's going to be a little bit of a surprise for people. One, that I'm even talking about this card because it hasn't made any sort of real competitive waves in a very long time. And two, because it's a small white creature and I've kind of expressed my disdain for small white creature decks on this show several times. But, hear me out. Favored Hoplite is a single white mana for a 1-2... I can't remember the creature type. I think human soldier. Doesn't really matter. Uh, 
and it has heroic whenever you target this creature with a spell or ability or whenever you target this creature with a spell put a plus one plus one counter on it and prevent all damage that would be dealt to it for the rest of this turn so despite being a cornerstone of the Aura's deck and the Feather deck in Pioneer because of how valuable it is with cheap spells that target your stuff to put 1-1 one, one counters on your 1-drop. This thing is a quarter. This thing is 25 cents. It's only been printed once. It's an uncommon. And it sees play in two decks that are have kind of a niche following, but those tend to be the kinds of decks that randomly spike a card like Slippery Boggle up over $5. And favorite hoplite is still a quarter. I I don't get it. I, I I'm starting to lose faith in my ability to project card prices because of stuff like this. This thing is so good. Because it does some absolutely filthy things to combat early in games. Your opponent better be playing Bone Crusher Giant, because if they're not. This thing is going to throw their math all over the place. I don't care if they got Soul Scar Mage. Because Soul Scar Mage's replacement effect is only going to work if it prevents the damage. But if I prevent the damage, it doesn't work. I think. Don't quote me on that. Double check that ruling. Uh, but even, you know, discounting Soulscar Mage and Bonecrusher Giant, both cards that are good, not stellar in Pioneer. It just does filthy things to most of the one-drops in the format. It will just bounce off a Monastery Swift Spear and doesn't even leave itself open to getting burnt or blown out by a follow-up shock or a, a shock in the middle of combat. Wild Slash is probably rough, but protection helps a lot there. Cards like, the cards you play alongside this are cards like God's Willing, Karametra's Blessing, uh, Sheltering Light, Gird for Battle, you know, uh, an aura that has flash that gives plus one plus one, or an aura that has flash that, get, that gives protection. It just outmaneuvers an overwhelming amount of the early game combat stuff that people do, especially in Pioneer. So it's a quarter. What's there to lose? A whole dollar getting four? We'll take our chances on that one. And last but not least, our, uh, our all three colors, our commander focus card is Narset Enlightened Master. Now Narset is Jeskai plus three mana, so Blue, white, red, plus three mana. And Narset is a 3-2 legendary creature human monk. And when she attacks, you can exile the top three cards of your library. Maybe four. I think it's three. Three or four to uh, top three or four cards of your library. Until end of turn, you may cast any number of them without paying their mana costs. Also, she has first strike and hexproof, so they're without a board wipe. They're not killing her before she attacks. 
and without some some creatures that are standing up to her in combat and depending on what you hit off of Narset's trigger they're not killing her in combat either first strike's real good first strike plus hexproof is better first strike plus hexproof plus free spells is kind of nutty and that's the beautiful thing about it so when it comes to narset free spells are good i hear that's that's the first thing that comes to mind you look at that card and you're like oh my goodness <laughs> they they why did they print that like why did they tell me I can have upwards of three to four free spells per turn as long as I keep this thing alive? Why? Why is this considered okay, wizards? It's the kind of card that can be as janky or as broken as your imagination. So, you know, if you want to play a Narset Chaos deck with cards like Chaos War, Warp World, uh, In the Toils of War, uh, that card called there's wars toll i don't know there's there's a lot of stuff you can do with narset that's just kind of wild and out there now bear in mind narset the free spells you get have to be non-creature forgot to preface that uh you can cast the non-creature non-land cards from among them without paying their mana cost like that's already pretty strong just the ability to cast your big dumb expensive chaos payoffs but then you have like your regular sort of controly card advantage payoffs. You can cast Inspired Ultimatum off of this and just draw five, deal five, gain five. You can cast uh, Board Wipe off of this and reset the board. You can cast more card draw. You can cast uh, a expensive removal spell that deals with multiple targets and generates some sort of other card advantage. And then you can just like take extra turns. You can just flip over... Uh, time warp you can flip over time stretch and just take two extra turns and do it all again you can cast turnabout and untap all your lands and then be able to cast like absolute nonsense from your hand you can cast relentless assault and get an extra combat phase and do it again you can cast insurrection and take all of everybody's creatures before you cast Relentless Assault and get another combat phase. It's busted if you want it to be. It's also wildly entertaining if you want it to be. The thing about Narset Enlightened Master is her power level is based on your imagination and your willingness to make people hate you. And there's not really much more you can ask for from a commander deck building standpoint. The level of customization and uh, different styles of play that comes with Narset. There's really not a lot more you can ask for for one dollar as a commander. Just go get them. Moving on, our next segment is Brew of the Week. And this week's brew is less of a brew and more of an update on a standard deck that has kind of undergone a metamorphosis of late. For those of you who don't know, I've been a big proponent of the cycling deck in standard because it's a good budget option and it does a good job of like checking all the right boxes for a budget aggro deck. It, it does the fair things well and it has a little bit of unfair. Uh, it's linear, it's easy to play. 
And then the last several months have happened and made it a little bit harder to get by on playing cycling. But coupled with better mana, thanks to the, the release of the rest of the pathway lands and just a general overall kind of format that has slowed down considerably. Just Guy Cycling in Standard has become this sort of neat little case study in how you can mix and match concepts from different styles of play into what should be a linear aggro deck. Case in point, the original foundation for the cycling deck is Flourishing Fox, Dronus Stinger, Valiant Rescuer, and a bunch of cards with cycling for one mana are really good at getting your opponent dead, especially in conjunction with the Oops I Win button that is Zenith Flare. All of these things are still true. All of them. But they were having trouble in games that went long, when an opponent could remove their threats, when an opponent could uh, stretch the game out and make them block, you know, just make them do all the things they weren't built to do. So what did they do? They adapted. And now the cycling deck in standard feels much more almost like a mid-rangey aggro deck. Uh, sort of a big aggro deck, thanks to the addition of cards that have been in standard the whole time the cycling deck has, but they just didn't play because the mana was awful. And those cards are things like Improbable Alliance, Ironcrag Pyromancer, and sometimes even Real the Everwise. And in the case of these cards, I mean, they add an element of grind to a deck that sorely, desperately needed it. And I'm here for that. So, uh, where it was previously a very linear aggro deck, now it's got a little bit of grind thanks to these new cards. Uh, card draw from Riel payoffs for using cycling on your own turn in the form of Improbable Alliance, Ironcrack, Powermancer, cards that play well with your Valiant Rescuer that want you to cycle on your own turn and on your opponents, as opposed to just going all in on cycling on your turn with Flourishing Fox. So you've got the ability to go kind of go tall with your Flourishing Fox, but you can also go wide with all these different token producers, or Ironcrag Pyromancer can just make sure you never have to attack. Just as long as you can draw an extra card on your turn and two extra cards on your opponent, you can just keep shooting them. And you can win the game that way in conjunction with Drawn a Stinger. Like, both of your primary game plans get better by adding these cards. It also opens the door for removing Luris's companion because, again, you can't play Ironcrag Pyromancer and Luris as your companion at the same time. But it opens up additional options. You can play more creatures in order to justify using you know more cards that cycle for one. Again, putting it allows you to put Riel into the deck, which allows you to draw extra cards. Uh, cycling on your opponent's turn once draws two for your draw two stuff. More instants and sorceries make Riel better. Now, from a customization standpoint, if Luris is still your jam, you can move Ironcrag Powermancer to the sideboard, and then everything else in the main deck is still two or less. 
And you can play a card like Ominous Seas, which is just another non-creature permanent that can sit there on the battlefield and generate value or force your opponent's hand with cards like uh, Brazen Borrower. Once it starts getting close, they have to use it on that and they can't use it on your Fox or they can't use it on your Improbable Alliance or they can't use it on, you know, whatever the case may be, they can't use it on that thing. So if they're more scared of 8-8s, they have to worry about the 8-8s. And if they're more scared of something else, it just, it pushes things in a different direction. As for the overall outlook of the cycling deck, it is still very capable of clocking the slower decks, like Fox into Double Cycle, into Triple Cycle, into Zenith Flare, will still absolutely murder people sometimes. If they just don't have it, or they're too interested in setting up their own plan and they're trying to race you, they're just gonna die. But the grind package also gives you game against the other aggro decks, notably, you know, giving you easy ways to chump block Lovestruck Beast in the absence of Embercleave. Uh, you can use those tokens to gang up against stuff like Fervent Champion or uh, Robber of the Rich. You can use those tokens to gang up against bigger stuff. The Improbable Alliance tokens fly, so you've got a little bit of chump blocking against uh, Goldspan Dragon plus Unleash Fury. You know, you've got a lot available that gives you sort of a multiple look. You can do a little bit of what you need to do in every matchup, and I love it. So for that reason, Jeskai Cycling was this week's Brew of the Week. But that brings us to our main topic, who actually are the Jeskai? What, what's the deal with that? Well, the official name of the clan is the Jeskai Way. Which I think is super cool because it's not got that, like, classic clan gang, you know, that we're accustomed to. It's not the clans, it's not the houses, it's not the, the syndicate, it's not the organization. This is the way. <laughs> uh, the Jeskai are the Blue Cord Clan of Tarkir, uh, exploring the relationship between blue and its ally white and its enemy color red. So, in the case of Jeskai, they are the admirers of the ancient dragon's aspect of cunning, where Abzan was about the, the admiration of the dragon's aspect of endurance, of, you know, the ability to survive against all odds. The Jeskai are about intelligence, intellect, strategy, finesse. And if anybody knows me when it comes to playing magic, I love finessing people. It is so much more satisfying to me than just beating them down with brute force. I like using my head making each game a new puzzle to solve. And to quote my friend Andrew, when he was still playing Magic, he would say uh, he likes decks that take more game actions than the opponent. You just get to cast more spells. But when it comes to the lore of the Jeskai, their, their primary disciplines are martial arts and mysticism, if you will. Uh, they live in isolated mountain monasteries, each with their own signature philosophy and style that they practice. Uh, 
preferring strategy over power and did I, did I write that anywhere? I don't think I did. But they're, they're a focus on strategy over power. They're a focus on plan or, you know, strategy over strength, plans over power. And I just love that. I like that. That's one of my great regrets that uh, during my break from Magic, I missed getting to play uh, Tarkir Standard. Because to me, that would have that would have been really sweet, getting to play the style, you know, a a, a clan whose flavor is rooted in the way that I like to play. So it's, you know, it's one of my biggest regrets is not getting to play during that era. Their mechanic, prowess, is what I call the realization of a blue combat mechanic. Placing the correct kind of importance on knowing what kinds of combat tricks are available. It essentially turns all of your creatures into walking or flying or sliding combat tricks. Because any non-creature spell will change the math on power and toughness, and then depending on the mechanic in question, it might change how blocking works. It might change, you know, you add protection and buff your creature, you might just be beating theirs down and not losing yours. You add a lot of power and toughness. You add power and toughness across the board, but you have one or two creatures with prowess. It's the kind of it's it's a combat mechanic for the thinking person. <laughs> it's the combat mechanic for people who really like to make their opponent do math. I love that. As a prowess is also just the only keyword from the shard and wedge cycle from shards of alara and cons of tarkir it is the only keyword to become evergreen it's the only keyword to show up in later sets all the time to the point that it like i thought it was exclusive to tarkir but when i started playing again it was in battle for zendikar and it was in Corset, and it was in Shadows Over Innistrad, and it was in Amonkhet, and it was in, you know, not a lot of it, mind you, but enough that I noticed. Cards like Storm Chaser Mage, cards like Soul Scar Mage, cards like uh, Jeskai Elder that was in a Corset, cards like uh, the, the Prowess Jackal in Amonkhet Limited just kind of all over the place just a hand a small handful of cards with prowess have made their presence known in several sets over the years since Tarkir released and I think that's super sweet actually having a mechanic that perfectly personifies the style of combat mechanic they wanted to do with blue just kind of accidentally be the thing that they designed for the blue wedge is really cool for me As far as a competitive history, I wanted to take a look at this one from a little bit of a different angle because Jeskai is so much on strategy over strength. 
instead of looking at kind of a competitive pedigree and noting the fact that several of the decks have similar themes, the thing about Jeskai is just how nebulous it really is. How sort of all-encompassing when it comes to archetypes it really is. So I wanted to pinpoint one example from each macro archetype, aggro, midrange, combo, control. And we're going to start with the midrange because it was my first real exposure. And that was the Angel Fire deck from 2007 standard. It was uh, Planar Chaos standard specifically. Now in Time Spiral, one of the time shifted cards was Lightning Angel. Red, white, and blue, and one for 3-4 Flying Haste Vigilance. Notably, she had four toughness, so she lived through opposing lightning, uh, lightning helixes. She had uh, flying vigilance, so she was attacking over while simultaneously blocking. And there was a long period of time where we were just kind of trying to figure out where we wanted to use this card. And then this deck popped up, and it was seemingly, at least at the local level, everywhere. You used a combination of powerful removal spells in cards like Lightning Helix, cards like Wrath of God, cards like, uh, oh, I'm trying to draw on a blank, uh, Volcanic Hammer, or no, Incinerate was in standard at the time. You know, you had burn spells to take out small creatures, you had Wrath of God to take out boards full of big creatures. You had some tempo elements in the form of Mana Leak and Remand available. Most of the Angel Fire decks just played Remand. So the ability to counter a key, counter a, a key fundamental turn spell, bounce it back to their hand, draw a card, and then be able to apply pressure the next turn. It's kind of a big deal. There was a mana disruption package in the form of Boom and Bust. Uh, Boom, in particular, was really good alongside your Flagstones of uh, Trocare that you were playing. So that you could boom their land and your Flagstones, and your Flagstones would replace itself with a Sacred Foundry. Which was really cool. But it would also, you know, a Sacred Foundry or a Hallowed Fountain, you just blow up their, blow up their land, mess up their mana. For two mana, there's not a whole lot more you can ask for. from a mana disruption standpoint, but it also gave you sort of the Ernamgeddon approach to the mid-game, where when the game started to stretch long and both players were top-decking, if I top-deck a card that makes your lands go away, and I've got the only creature in play, I'm probably going to win that game. That's probably going to go great for me. And then for your actual creatures, you were playing cards like, obviously you were playing the aforementioned Lightning Angel. You were also playing Firemane Angel, which was a great creature to discard early in the game off of your compulsive researches and your careful considerations because you could dump them into the graveyard and they would be able to come back later if you're hitting land drops and the game's about that, but they're also just gonna sit there and passively gain you life every turn if they're not which is also a way to help you race against aggro decks. It's just great all the way around. Uh, in addition, you also had access to value creatures in the form of cards like Kordu Tsar, 
that would let you look at cards on the top of your library, pick one, put it into your hand. Uh, Azorius Herald was a 2-1 that would gain you 4 life. Uh, some of the builds ended up including cards like Momentary Blank alongside additional creatures like Avalanche Riders as sort of a sub-package of what we called at the time the Blink-187 package. <laughs> Which, you know, Momentary Blink plus Avalanche Riders is a real good way to make your opponent hate their life. But that was the, the mid-range approach. What about a control deck? Well, for that, we go to Modern. And it's just kind of been around forever. I don't think it's ever going anywhere, but it waxes and wanes in playability based on what everybody else is playing. Blue-white control has been a staple in Modern forever, but when you splash red into the deck, you're doing so for two reasons. One, you want to be better against small creatures because you can kill them more reliably with access to cards like Lightning Bolt and Lightning Helix. Two... You want to be able to turn the corner very quickly once you start to get ahead by virtue of being able to bolt their face, Snapcaster Mage the bolt at the end of the turn, and then untap and attack them. That represents eight points of damage out of seemingly nowhere. And when you're playing bolts, snaps, and helixes, You've got a little bit of juice to be able to just win the game out of nowhere with, you know, bolt, snap, bolt, untap, animate, celestial colonnade, close the door. Because the two bolts deal six, the colonnade deals four. You just, you just get stuff done, you know? <laughs> and then you also have access to Mana Leak, Cryptic Command, and Remand for the purposes of just kind of making sure nothing gets out of hand. Now, obviously, this deck was much better prior to the Mystic Sanctuary ban. But even in the absence of that card, you've got a lot of options. Like, a lot, a lot of options. Your entire focus in playing this deck, for the most part, is to sort of, to, to make the analogy, it's like playing a zone defense in football. You are very rarely going to just absolutely hammer your opponent. You are very rarely just going to be like undoing everything they try to do. But what you are doing is keeping everything in front of you, focusing on what's important, figure out what they're trying to do, and then you put the squeeze on that. Next on the agenda, we're going to talk about a combo deck. And for that, we go to a combination of 2014-2015 standard and Pioneer, at least in its early days. I don't know if it's, I don't know what, if this deck is still remotely viable. Uh, Andrew was led to believe it was not because of the banning of Veil of Summer, but it's something I would like to visit at some point regardless. And that deck is Ascendancy Combo. Ascendancy Combo is very, very simple elegant and beautiful almost in the interpretation of the combo archetype because you are p 
part two-card combo, the two cards being a mana creature and Jeskai Ascendancy, and part storm combo, where you, what you're trying to do is just generate a lot of mana so that you can continue casting spells to pump your mana creature big enough to kill your opponent. So you're playing a bunch of cantrips, you're playing a bunch of uh, cheap removal, if you're playing any removal at all. You're primarily playing cantrips or cards that generate mana that in conjunction with Jeskai Ascendancy become cantrips. And while technically I know this is a four-color deck, this deck is not possible without Jeskai. You are not building this deck without Jeskai Ascendancy. It's not happening. So to that end, it is a very Jeskai combo deck. Uh, you marry a blistering array of cantrips to a suite of mana creatures with the sole purpose of just casting as many spells as humanly possible and killing your opponent out of nowhere with a giant mana creature. Or if you're playing Sylvan Awakening, a bunch of them. <laughs> now you play Sylvan Awakening... Your mana creature untaps, you float a mana in response, all your lands become creatures, you play a cantrip, untap everybody, and all of those lands become creatures now. And you can just keep casting cantrips and eventually your opponent dies because you've got extra mana and, you know, you're not exposing yourself as badly to removal. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, it's the kind of deck that is very all-in. It is either really good or really bad, depending on what the format is doing. If the, op if the opponent is built on attacking your hand aggressively, a la the Rakdos Arcanist decks, the uh, Blue-Black Control decks, the mid-rangey Mardu decks, or what have you, it's not going to be very good, because it is really hard for you to combo without Jeskai Ascendancy. Veil of Summer helped with that immensely, being able to fight through something like a Thought Seize. You could protect yourself and draw a card. It's also not very good against counter magic, for obvious reasons. But if your opponents are just kind of trying to ignore you and kill you on turn four, why not just kill them on turn three? Seems decent to me. And that's what this deck is about. Last but not least, we have, we go back to 2015 standard. It was after the release of uh, Battle for Zendikar. And we're going to take a look at Jeskai Tokens. Now, it was a deck that saw some action during the actual Tarkir block era of standard, like the beginning of it, when it was the newest thing. But it's a deck that got infinitely better when other things left the format and Gideon Ally of Zendikar entered the format. In addition, it also picked up a lot by gaining uh, Jace Vren's Prodigy from Magic Origins. This is the fair version of the Ascendancy deck. It's the best way I can describe it. Ascendancy, if Ascendancy is designed around the express purpose of killing your opponent as quickly as possible, Jeskai Tokens is designed around the express purpose of killing your opponent eventually. We'll get there, we're going to play some stuff, we're going to make it bigger, and then we're going to kill you. 
It's a swarm aggro deck. It's got a little bit of that combo bend to it, thanks to Jeskai Ascendancy and Jace Vren's Prodigy, helping you turbo through your deck, flip a Jace in order to continue comboing sort of with Ascendancy and make your tokens really big. But at the end of the day, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's an aggro deck. You're not, you're not playing a bunch of mana creatures. The only creature you're interested in untapping multiple times is Jace Friend's Prodigy. And that's just to get it to flip so you can cast another token production spell or a haste enabler to kill your opponent. Jace Friend's Prodigy and Gideon Ally of Zendikar also gave that deck an unreasonable amount of grind game because Gideon, its entire time in standard, was one of the best cards in the format from the moment it released because it turns out four mana, make a 2-2 every turn, or four mana, all my creatures get bigger, or four mana, uh, I'm joining the fight next turn. It's pretty good. It's just objectively one of the best threats available, even though white was kind of down as a color for a while at that time, still arguably is. Gideon was really good. It wasn't that Gideon fixed the ills of white, it was Gideon was kind of a personification. It's a very top-heavy color, and Gideon's like, I'm the top-heaviest top-heavy of all. <laughs> And then you also had access to Treasure Cruise, which is just, as most of you know, an absolutely messed up in half magic card. Uh, draw three cards for one man is real strong. I don't know how many, I don't know how many times we need to beat that into people's heads, but uh, Ancestral Recall is good, I hear. So, in conjunction with Gideon, Jace, and Treasure Cruise, you had the capacity to grind people out that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise had without access to those cards, and you would have been more interested in being sort of the all-in Ascendancy deck. But that's kind of a, a, a good synopsis on what the Jeskai way really is. It's less about being good at one specific thing the way a lot of these other uh, color combinations are, and much more about having a little bit of bend into every archetype, which I think is really sweet. Multiplicity is something I value. Versatility, something I really value. And it has led me to play a lot of bad Jeskai decks over the years because they could be multiple. You know, I played the Jeskai... I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit that I played the Jeskai Heroic deck after uh, Ikoria dropped in order to play Sprite Dragon alongside 10th uh, District Legionnaire and Feather and or now alongside Luris, and then uh, Staggering Insight. I'm not ashamed to admit that I played that deck. I am ashamed to admit that I played that deck too long. Because it was like, fine. It was not good. But there you have it. That's, that's all I've got on Jeskai. So if you've got questions, you've got comments, you've got concerns, send them to me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, at HomewardPathMTG. I'm on Facebook. My username is Adam Spain. You can join the conversation in the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. If you're a patron of the show, you can join the conversation in a much more direct and, uh, what's the word here? <sighs> Persuasive fashion in the Patron Pathfinders Discord channel. And, you know, 
Speaking of which, if you want to donate to that, if you if you want to become a member of that, it's patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. Show's always free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, please feel free to do it. Jump in, become a patron, take advantage of those rewards. And with that, when we move on to the best segment every week, let's get it pulled up. Finally stop the car. Um... <laughs> Where'd it go? Search. Come on. Dad jokes. There it is. Latest. I think we only have one, maybe two. Did I already do that one? I didn't do that one. So... Our first one is actually from a little while back, and I just forgot to do it. Uh, from John Ramos, who has become one of my favorite people to interact with online. He said, man, blue-green decks are going to have a really hard time trying to be good when one card isn't carrying literally the entire weight of your decks with it. To which Titan Smash MTG says, Euro got to be kidding me. <laughs> I tagged it. Titan Smash said, you're welcome. And then the newest one from, let's see, at Joseph M. Schultz, adding Ink Shield to my Black White Tokens deck. Why? It's the least I could do. <laughs> that's, that's clever, and I love it. <laughs> Someone says, I had an inkling you'd add this in. Great to keep your spirits up in game. Uh, let's see. Yeah, that's that's what we got. But that's all, you know that's it for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you've got, as mentioned before, if you've got questions, you've got comments, you've got concerns, you can send them through Twitter, Facebook, Facebook group. If you're a patron, send them on the Discord channel. And just remember, everybody's going through stuff right now. I've been going through stuff lately. Uh, between my COVID vaccination, my wife's COVID vaccination, my wife's desire to embrace what she feels is her new identity. Not to say that she's uh, transitioning, but she is abandoning sort of the, the trauma that has haunted her most of her life. And I'm absolutely proud of her for that. And uh, she's in the process of changing her name. So, if you hear me talking about Amaris, I am not cheating on my wife. That is my wife now. <laughs> but, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. So, we'll be back either next week or the week after, depending on how things go. With, oh, what is next? Mardu. So, hope everybody's excited. <laughs> uh but that's all I've got. So be safe, everybody. Be kind to one another. And we'll catch you next episode.